2: The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current-day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com.
4: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: Hey, welcome back everybody as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is an associate professor of history in the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia and the author of a new book called Tonorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. His name is Peter Norton. He joins me by phone. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Um, i I need to pull this apart a little bit. I think we need a couple of definitions here for context. Um, first, high-tech driving. What do we mean when we say high-tech driving?
1: Well, right now, most recently, the people selling it uh, mean what they like to call autonomous vehicles, vehicles that supposedly drive themselves uh, without the faults of human beings, without all the human failings we have as drivers, and therefore they're allegedly perfect, and that's this generation's version of high-tech driving. There have been earlier generations of high-tech driving that, that were different, but with the same kind of promise that they would solve all our problems.
2: And when you say the illusory promise, you, you're really just referring to the fact that Technology isn't necessarily perfect either, is it?
1: Oh no, exactly' right, and I like the way you put it because' there's, everyone knows that humans aren 't perfect, uh, certainly not perfect drivers. We you know lose something like thirty seven thousand people a year are killed on American roads, um, so yeah, humans aren 't perfect, and then this kind of sets up the high tech driving salesman. Uh, Because then they can sort of say, well, then robotics must be better uh, since robotics don't have human failings. But then what they don't tell you is that the robotics are also bad for mostly different reasons than humans are bad. Humans are bad because of impatience, distraction, fatigue, alcohol, and so on. Robots are bad for different reasons.
2: And, and I'm, when you say that, I'm thinking of the testing, uh, I think it was a Japanese car company, but they were testing in Australia, and they were testing autonomous vehicles, and, you know, the, the vehicles were doing great, except they had this flaw. They The radar in the car, and you probably remember this story, couldn't judge the distance of a kangaroo crossing the road when it was airbound.
1: Yeah, so I mean, the, the uh, programs running these cars are trained, so to speak. They learn from uh, feeds from sensors, uh, you know, cameras and so on, that what things are. And so, if they encounter something that doesn't fit the patterns of what they've been trained on, they don't know what to do. You know, so if a kangaroo is jumping up and down. It's like uh, an object appearing and then going away and then reappearing, while you and me, you know, having lived in, on planet Earth much longer than that car ever did, and, and having been in many different kinds of situations, not just road situations, we know that an object that appeared is probably still there somewhere, just out of view.
2: How much is the evolution of the automobile uh following the development of technology and how much of it is following demand?
1: Well, you know, that's a interesting way to put it because, you know, the people selling these things have always been eager to find new kinds of demand for what they have to sell. And technology has been one way to set, sort of Promise more, and thereby hopefully, from their point of view, increase the demand. Um, so, uh, for example, right now, General Motors is promising zero crashes, zero congestion, zero emissions uh, because of autonomous vehicles, and and that kind of extreme overpromising is meant to uh, you know attract demand with technology. So, technology can be a way of making a incredible promise credible. And when you make an incredible cr- promise credible, uh, the people who you know, are believing this, this promise will go along with it. You, you know, when people fool you your, you, your trust goes down. But then they can say, well, look, we, we, we disappointed you before, but that was because we didn't have the latest technology. And now we do. And so this becomes the way that they regain trust even if the technology doesn't deliver uh, what's promised,
2: but isn't it kind of tough to create demand for products that much, much like our Australian kangaroo friend, are a moving target?
1: Oh yeah, um, I mean it's been a it's been a struggle. And you know what I mean the,
2: by that? You mentioned General Motors and talking about yeah. no more crashes because these autonomous vehicles would be so smart. That they would just avoid those problems, but they're also um, talking about be no more parking problems, be no more. In in fact, they're describing um, they're starting to describe a world where there's just a fleet of vehicles that you just pull up on demand to come and take you where you want to go, and then they go off and pick up somebody else and take them. And there are just these cars in motion all the time. There's no need to worry about parking.
1: That's right, they're, they're uh, sort of, and, and what, this is a really incredible promise, but what makes it come across as credible is they can say, well, we have technology you've never had before, and therefore we can achieve things we've never done before. But we've been down this road before um, a few times. What I mean is the road where they promise that state-of-the-art technology will deliver these amazing things, and then it doesn't happen. And, and the reason is, you know, ultimately, the limit is not the technology. The limit is the idea of moving one, two, three, maybe four people at a time in a large vehicle that has to be spatially demanding. It has to be energy intensive. It has to be expensive. And because it has to be all those things, it even with the technology, it can't ever really deliver you know what we're promising, like take the parking, for example. We already know, thanks to Uber and Lyft, that you actually exacerbate congestion when you have everybody uh, summoning cars and having them take them straight to their destinations. Um, you get big backups wherever these the popular destinations are. Um, so the yeah, the the promises are not. Uh, credible, but they're made to seem credible because then they can say, well, we've got LIDAR, we've got radar, we've got state-of-the-art sensors, we have uh, amazing computational powers, we have networks, um, you're connected, and all this stuff is so impressive that then the promises somehow seem more credible.
2: Does technology stay cutting edge long enough for big companies like auto manufacturers to commit to?
1: Yeah, it tends to come in generations. So, yeah, we're in the generation of machine learning right now, which is, you know, kind of artificial intelligence. Uh, And in terms of the sensors, we're in the age of LIDAR, which is a very expensive form of uh, light-based radar. Um, And uh, this is the, the technology that is making the promises credible today in previous generations. It was different technology. Um, it, it It is hard to keep up with and and one one of the hazards is eventually it becomes obvious that the technology doesn't deliver everything that's promised, and then people stop believing in it. And then you have a typically a decade or two of skepticism until the next generation of technology is an opportunity to, um, you know, restore credibility.
2: You know, Peter, I have to say, you know, being from Flint, Michigan, and and, uh, growing up in Flint and around Detroit, every time I look at your book and see Otanorama, I I see Autorama. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because it's such such a big thing in, uh, you know, in, in the Motor City.
1: Well, the book's title is, of course, you know, ultimately I have to give General Motors credit for the title, not because they ever came up with Autonorama, but the title is sort of evoking Autorama. It's also evoking Futurama, and of course it's also evoking Autonomous, like Autonomous Vehicle. Right. So if you if you put Autonorama and Futurama and, uh, and autonomous together, you get Autonorama, which is, you know, so really the General Motors is the inspiration um, for the book. And General Motors really was ingenious at recognizing that selling cars isn't just about saying, look, we've got a car that works well, it's reliable, it's fuel efficient, why wouldn't you want it? They instead sold uh, a fantasy, a vision of a perfect future that we would all be part of a future where everybody drives everywhere for everything without any delay or any traffic jams and has a parking place right at their destination for free when they get there. And it's been an impossible fantasy, and pursuing it has been really expensive and and destructive. But uh, General Motors has really set the standard for making um, a vivid depiction of an attractive future that let that then leads people to, um, you know, buy buy uh, cars and and buy roads to uh, in an effort to get there.
2: Is are, are the uh, the original big three automakers? Are they primarily responsible for the notion that at least in America, everybody has to have a car?
1: Well. Uh, I would say yes, with the addition of other interest groups uh, that that were also in play. Particularly, the road building interest groups. Um, they recognized they had a lot, uh, a lot of business possibilities in a car based society too, and so auto makers, road builders, to a lesser extent, uh, like the American Automobile Association. Um, the petroleum people, um, the pavers, um, they were really united together to make sure that, for example, when we define if a destination is accessible to people, we define that on the basis of can you drive there. And then when you make something accessible to drivers, it tends to be inaccessible by anything else. And so we end up with a car-dependent society. And the engineering standards and the... uh, design standards that give us that car-dependent society were lobbied for intensively at the state and federal level by the automakers and their allies.
2: Peter, um, I have to take a uh, short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? The name of the book is Autanorama by Peter Norton, who is uh, a... uh, let me see. I want to make sure and get this right. Associate Professor of History in the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia. And the book is uh, Tonorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. And we're going to take a short break. If you're listening to us on uh, WFOV. LPFM in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Hearing. And we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com we have some messages as well. So uh, don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll be talking more Autonorama when we return
4: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and
3: you're
2: listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we continue our conversation with Peter Norton, Associate Professor of History in the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia and author of a new book called Autonorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. Peter, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that.
1: Oh, I enjoyed it. Um,
2: we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, how uh, people were convinced to, at least in the United States, um, to own their own car or to have access to their own car. And and how, how we went down that road, building uh, roads and gas stations and, you know, put two cars in every garage and and that whole idea and it it sort of plays into um, Americans feeling of of wanting to be free and independent and and so it, it seemed like a natural fit but with all, with all the technological advancements um, where we are right now why aren't we looking more to um, really effective mass transportation as opposed to the notion of, you know, seeing the USA in your Chevrolet?
1: It's a great question. Um, You know, one good way of, of, uh, starting to answer it is to point out that in all of our state departments of transportation, whether it's Michigan or Virginia or anywhere else, which is where most of these important decisions are made. Um, they start by, uh, equating what people are doing with what people prefer to do. What I mean is they look at, uh, they study the uh, vehicle flows on the roads and they study the other data like the bus passenger uh, volumes and so on. And then from that they they conclude, well, that's what people prefer to do, so that's what we serve. Like, for example, if 94% of people are driving a car alone, well, they just make sure that people can drive alone. And you know the the mistake in that kind of reasoning is pretty obvious. Namely, what people are doing is not necessarily what they prefer to do. It's very often, you know, if they're driving, it's very often because there is no other choice. And I, you know, I want to be clear. I'm not uh, saying that driving is necessarily bad. I'm just saying people should have choices, and and one of them can include driving. And in cities, we can we could give people a lot more choices. Um, if you live out in the country, you know, you probably need to drive. But if you live in a city, it would be pretty easy and affordable uh, in terms of public money to make sure that people have choices in, and one of those choices could still be driving.
2: Is there is there a, a path that transportation evolution is on i mean does it um is there i i I keep wondering i for one when i was a little younger i played music full time and traveled around and, and played drums and i often thought that i would rather not have a car and ride public transportation if not for having to haul a set of drums around all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I could never embrace what I thought was a coming trend of people getting away from an individual automobile and, mm-hmm. and going with public transportation. Is there a generation coming that, that um, it certainly seems like young people care a lot less about getting their driver's license and driving than I did when I was that age?
1: Yeah, well, I think we are seeing a generation growing up and already in young adulthood today who, many of whom at least, are more interested in having choices, many of whom think of car ownership as an expensive burden that they would rather not have to get into if they can avoid it. Many are moving from the suburbs into the cities so that they can have some choices about how to get around So, yeah, there has been some uh, generational change. It's not revolutionary but in in the sense that it's not extreme change, but it's it's significant change. And um, I think that that is a good trend because that will help us recognize the car for what it originally was. The car was originally a special-purpose transport tool. For example, if you had a drum set to carry around, Uh, that's a special purpose transport tool you need for that job. But um, companies, General Motors just being one of them, successfully redefined the car as an all-purpose mobility necessity that everyone has to have. And, you know, anybody who works with tools knows that the all-purpose tool is never quite as good as the special purpose tool at any particular job. You know, a good carpenter has a nice selection of tools and doesn't try to find one tool for every job, but we've had in this country uh, one tool for every job: transport, namely um, the car. But you, I think you're right. I think we're starting to see many more um, possibilities as cities open up bike lanes, uh, improve their bus service, introduce bus rapid transit, um, improve their uh, transit systems. Not that that's happening very quickly, but you know, some cities. Like San Francisco, for example, uh, are doing a, a really impressive job. So,
2: where are we in this in this evolution? Do do and what does the timeline look like? We start with uh, we've got certain features that seem somewhat autonomous. I, I remember a friend of mine buying a, a used Cadillac from. It was a 1965, and it had. Um, photoelectric automatic bright light dimmers. Which was way ahead of its time for 1965, but now we've got curb feelers and all these different you know, bells and whistles that go into our cars, working toward this idea that at some point, um, and, and we're very nearly there, um, the cars will literally drive themselves, and then this notion of, of having some sort of public fleet of driverless vehicles that will just sort of uh, Uber us to wherever we want to go. Did I lose you? Did I lose you, Peter? I think I, think I did. I might have to uh, reconnect. We had a little glitch in our Internet there, and when that happens, it, uh, it tends to interrupt the phone call. So let me try and see if I can dial him back real quick and carry on with our conversation. Anyway, my guest is uh, Peter Norton, and uh, we're going to try and reconnect with him. Yep, stand by just just for a moment. Well, drat. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try it again. Oops! Sorry about this, folks. Uh, welcome to live radio, as I've said so many times. Let's. Uh, all right. Let's see if we can uh, if we can get connected back up again and uh, and carry on with Peter because we still have some time left. Are we on yeah we're on Peter and uh, okay. my apologies and and uh, really what just happened kind of proves our point about technology because <laughs> I, I had a little glitch uh, in my uh, connection to the stream which yeah. also controls the phone so yeah we
1: you know what it's a good system your system wasn't driving an autonomous car on a busy road right there.
2: <laughs> well and, and that's kinda of, that's kind of my point. Um yeah. the, the question that I was asking was okay. you know we we have these these bells and whistles that keep getting um, more sophisticated and eventually you know we're we're being told that there'll be this fleet of driverless vehicles that will just show up on demand and haul us to wherever we want to go um but what is there an end goal to the to all this where we go through certain phases here's the autonomous vehicle phase and right. and then we get to i don't know flying cars and you know <laughs> then eventually we have uh, you know some kind of mass transportation system that that um Uses all of our technology and infrastructure to, right. you know, move people from place to place. Is or are we just being led around by the technology that makes itself available?
1: Well, uh, that I think that's our dilemma, and I think we have a choice. Uh, the choice is, uh, w- you know, we, the people who want to get around, can, you know, tell. The companies what we want. Tell our uh, elected officials and our policymakers and our city officials what kind of transport we want, and insist that we get it. Um, but the the distraction from getting what we want is the constant message we get about what what's coming, whether we want it or not. I mean, strangely, given the fact that this is supposed to be a free market economy where consumers choose. The message from the promoters of autonomous vehicles is autonomous vehicles are coming whether you like it or not get ready and they they say it pretty much exactly like I just said it they're coming whether you like it or not just get ready as if we in a free society don't have choices and the technology or the technology companies make all the choices for us so in in other words Where this is going depends on whether we keep getting led around by the people who want to sell us stuff or whether we insist that we as consumers and as citizens ultimately are the choosers. And if we like their technology, great, we'll take it. It can do some wonderful things. On the other hand, if we want some low-tech, sustainable, affordable alternatives, we can get some of those too. But the big companies are not going to sell us bike lanes and buses just because they're not profitable. And so our question has to be, do we want a profitable transport system that's profitable for the companies that sell it to us? Or do we want a transport system that works for us and that's also sustainable so that our children grow up, um, you know, with climate being a manageable problem instead of it being a disaster? Um, and that, that's, that's where we are. And I, at this point, I'm concerned that the message that what's coming is coming, get ready, we don't have a choice, is actually distracting from people from the fact that ultimately, in a free society, we do have a choice.
2: Well, yeah, because ultimately what they're saying is this is the wave of the future, and right. you can't stop progress
1: exactly yes that's exactly the message that uh, high-tech is better and that high-tech uh, is coming whether you like it or not and right you can't stop progress it's pretty much been the message and they've they've been um, giving it to us since the 1930s um, that one of the reasons why the book is called uh, autonomama is that it argues that we are now on Futurama 4. So, Futurama 1 was when General Motors told us back in 1939 that the city of 20 years later from that time, namely the city of 1960, would be a paradise because we would all have these radar guided cars that would let us go everywhere without congestion or delay and perfectly safely. And when that failed completely, they had Futurama 2. That's what they called it. That was a, a, a a show at the new york world's fair of 1964 and they showed a city of the future where everyone's driving around and the state of the tech art technology then was transistors and transistors were supposed to magically make it all work and that failed in the 1990s they sold us uh, smart highways they didn't call it futurama 3 but i think we could uh, that cost tens of billions of dollars and got us very little it got us um, variable roadside message signs that tell us where the traffic jams are. Um, but it costs tens of billions of dollars to, to deliver that. And so the book argues we're now on futurama four, which we could call Autonorama. And again they're telling us that for billions of dollars we can have something like magic. And at this point the investment that's gone into autonomous vehicles has added up to about a hundred billion dollars and has delivered almost nothing for all that money. And I think we should be asking ourselves, what could we have for $100 billion? Uh, you know, <laughs> I think you could get a pretty nice, some pretty nice bus service, uh, maybe some good uh, rail service, some good bike lanes, some walkability, and those people who want to drive would actually be better off too because a lot of people who are driving now would be taking those other modes and the roads would be less congested so i think for a much smaller price we could have a much better result if we don't fall for the promises
2: yeah i just can't help thinking you know with cities like los angeles and new york where you know you look at at, at any uh any freeway you know during the course of a day and it looks like a parking lot <laughs> why high-speed rail wouldn't be so much more appealing than spending hours in your car all the time. I mean, it's nice when you drive in, you know, I'm sure in rural parts of Virginia, as as in northern Michigan and the Upper Mm -hmm. Peninsula, when you get out away from the cities, it's nice to have a car and go for a drive. Oh, yeah. That's a a wonderful experience. But, you know, I remember when I lived in Los Angeles, it was... um, I had what they call a reverse commute. So while everybody was going one way, I was going Mm. the other way. So I got to and from work in about the normal time, what it would take me, you know, in Flint, Michigan. And there were so many people who were envious of me (laughs) for that. (laughs) Because they were spending up to two hours each way driving to and from work.
1: And every one of those freeways was built with the promise that it would be the freeway that solved congestion.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of those commercials for uh, uh, oh, Rubbermaid and other companies that make those storage uh, bins. And, um, you know, it shows a family getting all their stuff put away into <laughs> these bins and stored. And, and the punchline to it is oh, wow now we got to get more stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's, a, that's a good analogy with uh, road traffic. Uh, well, yeah, because
2: every new freeway is supposed to alleviate congestion.
1: Right, right. That's the promise. And, of course, what it really does is incentivize people to choose to drive and thereby negate the benefit that it had to offer. But, you know, just like... Many younger people are are insisting on having more choices besides having to own a car. There are some trends going the other way, too, including, I understand, in Detroit, the Chrysler Freeway, or at least a segment of it, is likely to get removed and returned to uh, a street grid. So um, there are trends the other way, too.
2: Well, and they may have to do that in a section of... Well, they, they've been forced to do it in a section of San Francisco because of the last...
1: Uh, That's right.
2: Because of the last earthquake.
1: That's right, yeah. Um, Got rid of the Embarcadero Freeway there.
2: Yeah, my guest is Peter Norton, Associate Professor of History in the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia and author of Otanorama: The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. Peter, what's... Uh, What's next? What are you going to take on next?
1: Well, uh, I have a current book project, uh, which is a much, uh, the much bigger story of how we got sold on car dependency. See, the, the usual story you get is this is what everybody wanted. Um, this is the result of consumer choices. And I'm not saying that consumer choices weren't part of it. They were. But the degree of car dependency we have uh, was is much bigger than that can explain, and, and that goes back to the influence of uh, businesses like General Motors, among many others, uh, to, to make a future where they would have a big market for everything they make.
2: And, um, you know, I wondered, uh, what about the, the idea of, of infrastructure, you know, we we've been talking around it a little bit with, uh, you know, how it accommodated this this growth in consumer demand for automobiles because yeah. they could get to where they wanted to go independently, and and yet we keep getting all kinds of promises of uh, infrastructure that's that's going to be brought up to date in some right. some way. And I'm not even sure if we know what infrastructure up to date is supposed to be and look like.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting to me is that if you look at uh, the headlines from any year going back to, uh, certainly to World War II, uh, without interruption, every, every year the headlines on some page of the newspaper is going to be Uh, We don't have enough roads. Um, (laughs) The the terminology of more recent years, like the last 20 years, is infrastructure crisis. And I got curious about where this word came from, and I looked into it. And at the United States Chamber of Commerce, there was a speaker, uh, and she said to uh, reporters that there was an infrastructure crisis, because the uh, Chamber of Commerce likes there to be a lot of big roads getting built. And the reporter said to to her, what do you mean there's an infrastructure crisis? Uh, Research shows that the U.S. has the best road network in the world. It's actually mostly relatively well-maintained. And and her answer was, when I don't call it a crisis, you all don't pay attention. And so uh, if if you convince people that there's a crisis, you can sell them. Uh, more roads, um, but it's pretty clear we need a future of fewer roads, not more. Roads haven't solved congestion. We need w- where it's where it will work. We need more uh, efficient means of getting around, and that will give the drivers a better experience too, because it'll take some of the drivers off the road, and those who keep driving will have more capacity. Um, so, in the infrastructure crisis, so called, has a lot to do with selling road capacity that we then have to maintain and we have been sold so much road capacity that we can't maintain it all, which is a signal that we shouldn't be building more. We can, we should be concentrating on maintaining what we already have.
2: Well, Peter, we're going to have to end it there. And I, I want to say thanks for spending this time with me and the listeners and sharing some thoughts from your book, Autonorama. Uh, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving by Peter Norton. And Peter, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website?
1: Yeah. um, if, uh, If somebody were to Google University of Virginia and Peter Norton, my university webpage would come right up. And the book is available at at all the usual places, whether you like Amazon or Powell's or Barnes & Noble or or your local bookstore can order it. Uh, So, yeah, that that would be uh, where to go.
2: Well, Peter, thanks for for being here and for your patience during a few little technical glitches. And keep up the good work.
1: Hey, Tom, I really appreciate the conversation. I hope you have a great morning.
2: All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Again, that was uh, Peter Norton, and we are going to take a short break. We have lots more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
0: Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out.
3: While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated.
1: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
6: We used to steal the wheels off of baby coaches to make go-karts. Now, those of you that don't know what a go-kart is, a go-kart is made from wood that you take old orange crates and stuff like that, and, and uh, it's shaped like an eye, like a big eye. We'll stand it up for you. And a board goes across this way, and then one goes down the middle, and then one goes across this way again. Then you have to make an axis so that you can make a left and a right turn, hammer, uh, hammer down rope and everything. So you can make a left and right turn. Then you need wheels. You've got to have baby coach wheels. Gotta have them, nothing else will work. So we used to go out at night stealing baby coach wheels. Two hundred and eighty-seven baby coach wheels we stole. The odd wheel was because old Weird Harold had a Continental on the back. <laughs> and uh, you get in your, get in your old go kart there, and just sit in it and just pretend that you were driving all over the country. And you gotta have your own music to, run, to ride your your go kart. Na 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 na. Na That was my music. I took mine from the from the Rough Riders. Na 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 na. Harold took his from the Lone Ranger. And Crying Charlie took his from the Green Hornet we had about three million kids all racing with their own music and so the cops heard about our stealing because the mothers reported their kids out here stealing our baby coach wheels every morning we put our children into the baby coaches push them the coaches don't move children look up and say why me so we had to hide them and uh, we waited two days for the heat to blow over. And we brought them out Saturday, Saturday morning, Go Kart Championship of America. And we're out there, all of us, full force, 300 kids out there. Friend, 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 and we're warming up our, our go karts at the top of the hill. We had a race on Dead Man's Hill. It was called Dead Man's Hill because it went straight down for about a quarter of a mile and then it emptied out onto a freeway. <laughs> Henceforth the name, Dead Man's Hill. And uh, we had everything. We had, we had guys that would make uh, pit stops and everything. If your wheel came off, guys would grab it and put it back on it uh, to have a two-hour pit stop. You know, because it takes a long time to hammer out the nail, straighten it back out, and then put it back in with a rock. You know, you can do it with a nail and a hammer, a real straight one, but you can't do it with a rock. good. And we had a fireman. Little kid, three years old, used to follow us running down the hill, had a cup of water in his hand. Whenever you went bad, he hit you in the face, with, you know, and put you out, run back up. He was fast. So now we got the go-kart championship of America, and we're all warming up. I'm warming up my go-kart.
0: I had not
6: even gotten out of first gear yet. <laughs> old Weird Harold's warming up his Rolls Royce. His sounds like this. And his old crying Charlie. And the kid came out with his father's underwear, he took black shoe polish, made some squares on him, and he weighed him. They're off. We're going down the hill. And I'm winning by six inches. Right behind me is old weird And he's gaining on me. It's almost like a four way tie for first place. Old Weird Harold shot past me. Gotta catch up with him. Fru-run, fru-run, <laughs> Reached into my pocket, pulled out my trusty can of three and one oil. Zoomed ahead. One of the kids went off to the side, an accident. Boosh, right in the face. Got him. And I look about 20 feet from the bottom of the hill and I see 900 cop cars waiting. I went to my emergency brake, which is a piece of wood. Push it forward, it'll stop you if you're going about one mile every five weeks.
0: No good. Put my legs down. gotta stop the cops are gonna lock us up no
6: no we smashed up 905 six-year-old kids on the ground crying oh the cops are beautiful gonna scare us to death pull the guns out we'll shoot them down right here kill all of them boy crying charlie broke The cops pulled out the cuffs, put the handcuffs on us, and it backfired on them because her wrists were so skinny. that As soon as we put our arms down, they fell off. <laughs> hey, Mrs., the, the things fell off of us, but we wasn't trying to run away or nothing. We was just standing right here, honest. Don't shoot us down or nothing, but they fell off of us because the wrists, and so they thigh cuffed us together. And that's the way we went to jail. <laughs> da-dum, 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 da-dum. Yeah.
0: I'll be the first one out the car, baby Heading for that bedroom vent- Sumner program.com. The Tom Sumner program.com. From the Tom Sumner.